Venerable Ajans, I'm getting very strong restlessness in the body, like cramps, one following the other. Often it lasts the whole sitting session through. How to handle this? Too much energy. <laughs> um, when, like, restlessness happens when we don't quite know how to balance the energies or the energy the energy of the body so the, the of the body or the energy of the mind and basically i would suggest when you feel that very strong physically to go out and do really vigorous walking meditation. So you are walking out the energy of the body. It can be like with the, I don't know if, if you have had already quite a few longer retreats or if this is your first 10-day retreat. On longer retreats, the not just the physical, but also the, the mental energy intensifies so strongly that it can manifest as restlessness in the body. And um, sometimes we can work it out just by really, if you know how to calm the body, how to calm the mind. But often we can't do that just by continuing to sit, especially if it goes, I mean, I have never experienced this, uh, especially if it goes into the into the realm of the body cramping up and getting very tense. It means the energy gets stuck in the body. So you have to do something to get it going. Walking meditation, vigorous walking meditation, maybe even some yoga or qigong exercises might help you to balance the energy in the body again. It's, but... What I also like to say behind it is often that we are that we use too much willpower, too much forcefulness in our meditation practice. So the person who has been writing that um, make really an effort, I mean, an effort to calm down, but <laughs> make bring less effort into your practice. Allow yourself to, like, allow the body to relax, allow the mind to relax, and to just, if you can, just breathe through those areas in the body that are getting very tense. But it might, when it is so strong already, you might really need to get up and walk it out or do some exercises that balance the energy. Ajahn, would you like to say anything else to this? Well, yeah, I'd agree with all that. I think the other thing you might do is use the <clears throat> contemplation of the elements. Mm. Um, so, earth, air, fire, water, space. <clears throat> As if you can recollect that, because the elements are often out of out of harmony with each other. It's quite quite common for them to be out of harmony with each other. Mm. So 
these elements are useful because they can refer to obvious course physical re- realities, uh, even emotional states, feeling fiery, feeling damp, soggy, you know, they refer to mind states. You can also refer to them because they're actually where body and mind senses originate from the same place, which is a subtle energy field, subtle body energy. And when that's out of balance, which it often is, you can experience these kind of phenomena. Mm-hmm. Restlessness is fire. It's it's uncoordinated fire. Um, and for that, what will bring that into harmony is uh, contemplating earth, the earth element, uh, feeling where you feel solid, the water element, of course, water and fire, you know sense of the overall envelope of the body, you might say the cohesive quality flowing through it, and particularly as you pick up any of these um, senses with your awareness, I hope this is understandable, you know, so then you, if you spread that quality through the body, this means if you feeling kind of restless things jabbing at you try to visualize it like pins and needles or um, it's a fiery quality <coughs> and the ending of the out breath is an earth quality the flowing is the water quality so you pick up something like that tune into that and put the two together as if you're breathing through through the restlessness. That that might also be helpful. But again I think walking meditation would be the first thing you could do, or standing meditation. But walking because you've got movement there and that movement helps the to give the energy something to um, connect to to be held with which is less fro- less rigid than the than the sitting position <clears throat> how can we learn to allow ourselves deep happiness Seems that Westerners in particular are conditioned to believe they don't deserve it. I've noticed that when happiness arises in meditation, the mind doesn't dwell there and drink it in, so it never develops very far. <clears throat> How can we learn to allow ourselves deep happiness? Seems believe that one doesn't deserve it. When happiness arises, the mind doesn't dwell and drink it in, so it doesn't develop. Uh, Yeah, well, deep happiness is perhaps, uh, you know, (laughs) not always available. (laughs) Start. Uh, 
different kinds of happiness, aren't there? But my sense is they're kind of contented. Everything is fine, sitting by the fire. That kind of warm, cosy, settled happiness is what we're uh, looking at, a restful happiness. And uh, it may be that the sense of being associated with a restful state, the mind that's used to organizing doing is like um, yeah but let's do something you know it's almost a conditioned in by work ethics and and sometimes even kind of religious senses of being unworthy of being a bit sinful just sit around and wallow <laughs> uh, so there are a couple of powerful conditioning forces one is the get on and do something useful if you're useful that means that that's good and the other is uh indulgence is is is, is a bit sinful <clears throat> mm. but the uh cultivation of this is uh, something uh, mudita which is the ability to have to to have joy that comes from appreciation and dwell in it gladness associated with the skillful mm. now how to allow yourself that mm. what stops it is it that your body doesn't relax enough is that your, your mind feels it's losing control? You know, our sense of self can be organized around being responsible and getting things done, and, you know, and it doesn't quite even trust or know how to, to take nourishment. Check out what what's the obstacle is. Again, visualizing things may help because uh, it puts it outside, uh, gives you a stronger image. So, you know, sitting in water, sitting in sunlight, sitting in, in happiness. Imagine lying, reclining. If you're sitting upright, just imagine that. What what allows you to be open and receptive without feeling you've got to get up and do something or sometimes sending happiness to other people can be one way of sneaking it in on the sly a bit of illicit <laughs> happiness I think you covered that very well. Maybe just one more thing. It's actually, you said that this morning to me. It's sometimes just really, maybe even when you start your day or before you're going to rest, just bring to mind what you appreciated, like what you appreciated from this day, something that that you feel really 
glad and grateful for. And just and just one thing doesn't need to be whole, a whole list, but and just really dwell in that. That gives a feeling of well-being, of of gladness, and and yeah, it's kind of also like an antidote to I'm not deserving this. <laughs> I think I think sometimes we forget the fact, just the fact that we are here. It's we we are here. And it's not about deserving or not deserving. We are here. Yeah? And just allow whatever you experience, and especially also in terms of well being, to feel that, to be to be touched by that. How important is it to find out what triggers a certain citta sankara? I tried many times, but can't understand. Ajahn, I think that is a question for you. <laughs> if you don't mind, I take the next one. Then. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> well, it's, it's not always so easy to understand, and it depends what you mean by understand as well. Um, it's, uh, you can't assume to have uh, clear um, intellectual knowledge or, oh, it's that. It's more likely to be a kind of sense, of felt sense. Mm. So really, because it comes from the perception aggregate is the trigger. Perception aggregate. And perception is, is a very varied experience. Um, it means something is seen or felt and it is sensed in a, partic- in a particular way. And we don't even really always get clear about that, or how things are being sensed. You know. Mm. So this area called the, the felt sense, or the felt meaning, requires a quite an open and not particularly intense gaze, not even a, 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 a the kind of mind looking to get the words. It's more like a, a sometimes a fuzzy sense of feels kind of feels kind of uh, tight or dark or nervy, you know, you just hint, it's not, you know, just do some hinting around it, suggestions. Mm. It's because the um, perception can be based on the eye, 
the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body. So, or even thought, how things sound to me, what words mean to me. And uh, um, coming into the the body base, as they come into where they're most directly sensed, is in a, a bodily sense. So you have to look into the body sense or tune into the body sense, which we may not be expecting. We may be looking into what we call the mind, such as our thoughts or memories. Perception can be a bodily perception. The way the body perceives things internally is through its own proprioception. It's like when it feels itself as as large or small or tight or imbalanced. <coughs> How it senses itself. And you're acquiring a particular kind of uh, sensitivity to that. And the, the big clear signs of things such as contraction, um, vacuity, I could just feel like a big hole somewhere, or um, lack of cohesion, you know, bits and pieces, or, or strongly imbalanced, um, or sunk, or spinning, um, or loose and open, or somebody talked about restless or heated, so there can be these senses. It can be a sense of something just feeling really imbalanced. And even then you don't know, you never know what it is. You can't, you know, you can just describe it, but you, what's that about? You don't know. But out of there comes the, the sense of urgency. Or <coughs> host, feeling hostile, feeling unwelcomed. Um, Mm. You know, particularly things such as that, feeling lost, feeling alone. So the, then the, these activities become, the mind starts activating in such a way. Going into the felt sense, the body perception, bodily perception of experience. Mm. And so to read that, now if you walk out, and today was quite a bright sunny day, now when you when you see things through your eyes, you see sunshine, you see coloured leaves, you see, oh, very nice. Can you sense what happens in your body when you see that, when that experience comes? You feel a certain widening and opening in your body, like, oh. Something opens and widens. As the body receives the visual meaning and it has its own way of registering that. Um, you know, you might find in, a, in crowded situations if there's a certain contracting in the body, it makes you feel nervous. And then with nervousness, we begin to get a feeling of some hostility. Nobody's just that, because that's what the signal does it's crowded, there's a certain nervousness and that can bring up a sense of hostility either directed towards myself or I'm feeling a bit irritated by other people but nobody's doing anything 
<clears throat> so these what can seem like irrational mood swings and mental activities or sankharas um, coming from perception and perceptions are various and they can be because we tend to believe in the outward appearance of things what we see with our eyes as being the real thing we believe in things such as time and places we believe this is a monastery and everything's okay that's what our eyes see, that's what our brain says but on the felt sense level that isn't necessarily happening at all because those are just visual impressions and your your chitta doesn't only picks up its perceptions and you may see something that reminds you of uh, or gives up the impression of you know impersonal and we feel we feel looked upon we feel somebody's looking at me we get that sense so just from seeing something like that a few months ago say I, I was I was in I was in Ireland teaching and I was teaching at a Catholic boarding school I, you know it was it wasn't the school wasn't operating the, the retreat uh, organizers had rented this old boarding school and uh, you know some people really found it difficult to, 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 to just go there because of the the sense of the overpowering institution that's looking down on you <laughs> you know and there's nobody doing it but the building says it <laughs> somehow and I, I have no experience of such a thing but as I walked up the drive I felt it too <laughs> this building <laughs> looking down at me like, you know like, gee, you know and long straight corridors and you know that, that thing you are small you are made small similarly and if you're in New York you know in some areas of Manhattan the buildings are so tall that you, you look up and the sky's just a little crack and the buildings are kind of almost meeting at the top and you just feel like, a, like some ant in a machine and yet you know so these these signals of things you know flat non-responsive inhuman buildings they they can have that effect the building doesn't do anything but it you know we are we are triggered by and uh, as somebody is saying today to me you know the primary most important trigger with that we find is threat one we're most attuned to checking out experiences of some degree of threat of being looked on in a less than benevolent way and that can be triggered by many things you know sights sounds gestures lineups you know groups mm. so perceptions are various but if you track the sankara and it's what's it doing, you haven't specified, so this can be a whole, you know, depends what it's doing. 
Um, if you can name what it is, this is a, you know, sudden sense of a lot of activation, panic. Is that it? Is that it? Or got to do, got to do, urgent, got to do something. Is that it? Or is it uh, can't do, impotence? I don't know. Depends what it's saying. That gives you if you if you re, if you recite it to yourself. Doesn't have to make sense if you recite if you can name what the sankara is and you say it to yourself again. It will probably the trigger will probably speak a bit louder if you go back to it. Like this is how does panic feel in my belly or my chest or something? So if you can name the sankara and just recite it and look for what what uh, what happens with that what's the the perception what's the felt what's the felt meaning what's happening in your heart what's happening in your body that may help you to to understand it and then, but understanding in dhamma practice is only as useful as one's ability to remedy. So we don't have to understand that much, just enough to know, ah, this needs shelter, uh, steadiness, uh, openness, uh, time, slowing down, warm-heartedness. You know, that's more or less, those are the medicines for most things. So you don't have to understand a lot, just enough to know a feeling of what's missing there, what's needed. You might even ask yourself what's really needed, what's helpful now. How do you use direct thought, thoughtfulness as part of meditation practice? I mean, I think we have talked quite a bit about this. Um, Again, it's applying, like directing the thought, applying it and using it for contemplation. It's like, again, when you do that, what is really important is that you that you provide the proximity or the the boundaries around what you want to explore like how you how you use a thought in your meditation practice so you are not ending up proliferating to go from one thing to the next with this thought so it's really important to be very clear what you are doing sometimes it might happen in your practice that um, just a thought like a thought arises and you know oh this is something I want to explore more and you take the thought and you hold it with like you hold it in your mind and you see what 
come, what arises with it, and you are not going into any explore. Like, like I just try to find an, an example. Like say, like, like you want to, like say you want to explore impermanence. Take, take an, take an example that is meaningful, meaningful for you right now. Whether in this moment, like say, exploring the impermanence of the breath, exploring the impermanence of, of very subtle energetic experiences in the body or whatever whatever you choose but when you when you choose a theme when you choose a certain thought don't go into um, proliferating in the way of oh yeah and that reminds me on yesterday or tomorrow I'm going to so you stay with the thought, you use the thought for your present moment experience. And if you explore deeper into it, you might notice that you find relevance from other practice experiences that come up with that. But like when we use thought, it is very important because the nature of thought it's it's very quick and they they change so quickly that sometimes if awareness is not really very strong we can get carried away by thought into stories when we when we kind of go into stories or dramas we are not really meditating anymore we are we are lost in in some proliferations that's not meditation practice so when we use thought we we try to really apply it to and and refer it to what is happening right now with this um thought like direct thought directed thought and thoughtfulness. I don't quite know what you mean by thoughtfulness. Probably something like contemplation. Yeah, but I mean, directed thought leads to contemplation too. Mm. I mean, that's that's how I would <coughs> use it in my practice. But I, I mean, one thing is before, I mean, what I usually do when I use thought in my practice is I make sure that there is already a steadiness and a calmness of mind. If you are not really centered, if you are still all over the place and you use thought, you most likely get carried away by it. Get carried away into just really some thinking from here to there, from from one thing to the next. and. Of course, that is not meditation practice anymore. And that is actually kind of most likely reinforcing um, negative thought patterns, actually. Yeah, that's what comes to mind for me. Is that. 
Which one do you want to? Well, just it's like you can it, use huh? almost it's barely a thought. It's just the the moment of acknowledgement. Mm. You can use vitaka, just oh yeah, I'm sitting on the ground. Oh yeah, there's that sensation in the back, just that pop, and then how is that? So so it's gonna be very short. They're very short. So sometimes they hardly seem like thoughts because we normally associate with thought being a whole couple of sentences when really looking at a very short word, barely a word, just it's the turning of the mind's attention to that and that's what directing means. You know, turning the mind to that point. Now how do you know the point if you haven't turned your mind to it? <laughs> you know, so that's its aim, is to see if I'm not directing my mind, my mind is probably going, oh yeah, da, 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 it's nice to see so-and-so. Da, 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 da. So that's the undirected, isn't it? It's just whatever. So how does it go from there, say, to focusing on the breath? There must be something that directs it. And so the primary thing is, well, wait a minute, breathing. How is it breathing? How is that? So that that is a very short nudge that tells attention where to go, and that's that's the most say the bottom line of it. Then you can develop it more for inquiry, which I think is like what I didn't met a talking mm. about where you really mm. what is that so then you're deliberately holding something longer and listening to it and touching it again how is that how is that where is that what is that get you know is this changing or not you know so then you're using it more in the inquiry way investigation but you can also just see it as the very first thing that establishes a meditation object. So suddenly, because the mind n- needs some steering. How to contemplate an organ such as heart, liver, kidney? Do you imagine them, or from anatomy, or from sensation? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't think you're going to get sensation, really, from organs, but you can, I guess you can imagine, visualize, or even, you know, visualize and then, you know, Consider it. Here's, here's, you know, there is a liver. What this in every this body, which has got kind of smooth skin on top of it and clothes and thing. Well, actually, all this is inside it. So it helps you to perhaps by using it to shift the body image from that which is derived 
purely from seeing the outside to considering um, what most of it's about, which is inside. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would say. Mm. Contemplating. Mm. I, yeah, uh, I mean, you, you're also the person who is asking that question. You have to see that uh, these kind of body contemplations are often used to as an antidote when to <coughs> when somebody is very strongly filled with lustful feelings or very sensual experiences, and they are used to kind of bring a balance back into the mind and into the body. And by doing that kind of body contemplations, it's very strange. Like, what happens is actually not that that you feel suddenly aversion towards the body, but it brings a calmness to mind. And, I mean, if you haven't yet had any experiences with it, if you haven't yet practiced it, I really recommend not to start with organs, but maybe just to start with your skin. I remember when I did that practice the first time, we I was in Thailand and we were, by the teacher, we were encouraged just really to look at our hand and the skin and the, the outer, what, what was visible, and then just imagining taking off the skin. What do you see then? How do you experience that? And then layers by layers taking off until you come to the to the pure bone structure. And to my amazement, I had never done that before. And what I noticed by doing that, it's just like really becoming more and more calm and more and more equanimous. It wasn't actually like at first I thought, oh my God. <laughs> This is disgusting. <laughs> but, but actually it wasn't. And it was was really, really interesting. Like I think one step is really to open the mind to do something you haven't done before. Or like of, of if you really want to work with the organs, then just open your mind to what what is that actually that is in this body? Like it's not just what we perceive and it, and it's not just like the clear, clean heart. You have to realize it's all this mushiness and messiness in there. That's all, that's all part of it. But actually, it looks pretty similar in me or in you or in you or... and. I think that is where that kind of meditation practice points at, is that it's about letting go of the attachments towards our body, towards <coughs> what we take as our body. Yeah, that's what I like to add to it. Can talking about negative experiences and feelings of guilt, regret, etc. really help us 
or does it reinforce our identification with it, especially if we keep returning to the story? Is meditation practice alone enough to ease the burden of upset of such feelings? There's a lot in that. Um, usually, if we take this negative experiences or pain like say painful experiences painful feelings like guilt is usually experienced as painful um, if we are just talking about it and we are starting to wallow in that yeah not a good idea <laughs> you kind of really reinforce those mental patterns when you do that um and also you reinforced usually like when we talk just randomly about this we 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 strongly identify with the experience and that's not a good idea sometimes it can help if you express an experience to let go of it but what I have often seen and done myself is we are so much going into why this is and how this is and how this came about and what it is related to and where it goes back to. And then we are completely lost in the pattern and we reinforce the mental pattern that goes along with it. So I don't recommend to do that. I think on this retreat we have spent a lot of time and the Ajahn has given lots of tools of how to relate to negative mental patterns, negative mental experiences, how to relate to that, like to churn it over in in the mind, like by creating a story or by going back into the story. That's definitely not the way out. But we have like in our meditation practice when we experience something like that coming up. And just remember Chitta Sankara, yeah, Chitta Sankara, the Achan just explained that. Like go to the, to the, to the body, to the somatic experience, to the felt sense of the experience, like of that thought or of that emotion. Where does it manifest in the body? How does it feel? What kind of, almost like what kind of mental tone or mental energy goes along with that? Don't believe in the story. Don't believe in in your identity. In almost like in your wish to identify with it. By doing so, you make the imprint in the mind deeper. You are reinforcing what has probably already been there before. So we have to find ways of moving out, moving out of the identification, moving out of the attachment to it. One thing that came to my mind the other day was take as an example like in Thailand they have 
very interesting monkey traps and some of you might know that it's like a wicker basket and it's just there's a hole like there's a round probably a round hole in it and it's just big enough for the monkey to put the hand or yeah the hand through and inside there is something that the monkey wants a banana a coconut piece or whatever so the monkey grabs it holds onto it and wants to withdraw the hand and it can't so the only thing he or she would have to be doing is letting go of the object and pulling out the hand this is how monkey get trapped <laughs> so monkeys get trapped because they don't let go and this is what we often do especially when we experience situations where guilt is involved we and i don't know what it is why we so much hold on to guilt it's almost like it is it's not helpful for you it's not helpful for anybody else and it keeps you in the loop it's like the monkey holds on to the object and it doesn't let go so find a way of understanding what you are doing right there what where does that come from what what is the source what is the basic the basic of of this emotion what is it where does it come from what has it triggered and really use investigation to find out but i think even more important is to go away from the pattern and really look into the body use the body as your anchor to understand and to let go of that that is what comes to my mind ajahn would you like to add anything um well that's quite thorough um yeah i think we talk a lot about this and certainly returning to the story is not a good idea but <clears throat> there's such a thing as skillful remorse which is recognizing you know, that wasn't good you know that was, that was a bit stupid thing to have done or said um but then it's really very much event specific so rather than identity specific see what i mean it's not that i am stupid reckless idiot but that um that action definitely wasn't coming from my best place <laughs> so it's more remorse is more event specific rather than identity generalization understand so then if you have if that has happened and certainly certainly we all do things that are not our coming from our best places mm. then the the strategy is uh this was not worthy of me i am bigger than this i am better than this this was not worthy of me not i am not worthy but this event this action was not worthy of me right so it's a different thing you identify as the patient rather than the disease so then we might very well what was it that did that 
and uh, we might not know. But okay, make a note, avoid this, or investigate what triggers that, and then general suffusions of kindness and compassion to a, every direction. <laughs> including yourself <laughs> yeah. so getting it wrong is, is pretty standard so it's it's one of those pivot points where it can just turn into this obsessive neurosis or it can be a chance to acknowledge and the Buddha says it is we regard this as great progress in this Dhamma discipline to acknowledge, to see a transgression and acknowledge it as such. <coughs> ah, because then I might have learnt something. Now that's skillful remorse. Something I did is worth learning about because I'm capable of learning. This is not worthy of me. I'm capable of learning. Now I have learnt. Great. You know, rather than I am an idiot, and I have messed everybody else's life up, and so forth. Then you're not capable of learning if you identify with with the the experience. <coughs> it was said that to be present, come and sit without regrets and grief. But how? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I don't think it said that. It says, uh, you know, dispelling these things, <laughs> putting aside these things. We we have them, but the practice is to acknowledge and to, well, let's park that one, put that one, you know. And if there's something you do need to think to work out, work it out. So it's just a bit of clearing, clearing things. Are not we a culmination of memories and our past actions that have affected us both good and bad and have created our identities? <coughs> Do not we need these relationships and our identities as we function away from the meditation cushion? Please explain. So, first question, well, I dealt with the first one. Aren't we a culmination of memories and our past actions that have affected us both good and bad and have created our identities? Simple answer, no. <coughs> hmm. um, <coughs> because uh, memories don't affect, create an identity. It's, it's attachment that creates an identity. It's Silpadana. And uh, um, we don't remember all our past actions, just consider how many actions you've done, um, many hundreds of them, millions of them probably, small, you consider also mental actions. So, but you experience the results of actions. You don't experience actions, you experience the results of them, which means that certain repeated actions generate patterns. You know, you've walked, You've skipped, you've danced, you've sung, you've cleaned your teeth, you've made some toast, you've said hello, you've said so many hundreds of... How many of those actually 
are there with you. Mm. <laughs> right. But uh, isn't it the case that one or the results of a few of those or strong tendencies, the results of them create particular patterns? When I say patterns, I mean familiar, pat, familiar thought patterns, familiar emotions. Some of those, you know, the sankara. Right. Now, attachment to those will generate an identity based upon that. But, you know, when I was five, I had an identity. Right? And clearly, at the age of five, how many things did I remember then? I didn't remember the, the things that I did by the time I was ten. At ten, I had an identity. So, was it a different identity or the same identity? At the age of ten, I couldn't possibly remember what I can remember at the age of twenty. Some would have disappeared, others would have arisen. So, it's a different set of memories, and yet there's still that ongoing identity. So the identity isn't created by memories, but by attachments to the results of some actions, significant actions or significant experiences. That's one basis of identity. But that isn't all, because surely our identity is also going to be based upon we, what we want to do, which isn't a memory, it's an aim. Right. I'm somebody who wants to help others. That's my identity. I'm someone who'd like to go to Japan for my holiday. I'm someone who would like to marry this person. So that's part of it, isn't it? So our identity isn't just on the past. It can also be based upon something that hasn't even happened yet. It can. So it's a number of places, areas, that it can be based upon. And so, but the f common feature of it is a certain attachment to the, the, the result and quality of those, such as uh, agitation, sadness, excitement, joyfulness. So it's the results give these rather you know, characteristic patterns and flavors. And even that changes because a certain day we may feel like, I'm quite a positive sort of person, happy person, I'm okay. Another time you'll think, oh, I'm a complete wreck, you know. Or So it's shifting, as in his experience. <clears throat> we can call ourselves the same name, you know. My name has been pretty much the same all these years, and my, you know, date of birth and things like that. But the real felt experience of identification is upon certain um, emotional tones and certain habits, patterns. Not all those are about memory, and memory doesn't create all of them, because there's such a lot to remember. This, um, so identification is like that. <coughs> Now, some, some actions, such as killing people or such things, 
are generated by a very strong tendency, very deeply powerful charge, voltage, emotional charge to to murder. That is that takes quite a lot of intense um, charge, doesn't it? You don't do it sort of like, oh, hello, just murder you. There's a, <laughs> there's a strong galvanizing effect. Now that effect, that stays, that's happened. It's carved into the chitta, isn't it? Well, the chitta isn't, remember the chitta isn't a thing, but it's rather like a magnetic field and you set a particular current running into that or, or you throw a particular set of particles, they line up. And if that's been a strong current, that stays, that uh, keeps there hovering. So that's what we call karma, results. And, you know, the Buddha gave the example even of a murderer. He's saying, so you say a busy murderer, you know, who does it one person a day. That's quite busy. <laughs> um, particularly in date when they didn't have automatic rifles to do it with. But even then, it doesn't take that long in a day to murder somebody, you know, if you're a good murderer, <laughs> five, ten minutes maybe, half an hour if there's a bit of a struggle. And he said, well, just look at that, you know, for 23 and a half hours of that day, you haven't murdered anybody. So how come, you know, you could say, I'm both basically sinless, I'm basically guiltless, I just had a little odd moment. <laughs> But why is it that you don't remember the 23 and a half hours of non-murdering and the half an hour of murdering? Because it's not that the memory, you know, it's the intensity of the action creates the intensity of the charge and the charge creates the result. It creates a kind of pattern in the mind. Now, it's not just your own actions even, but things like, uh, you know, being terrified. So, so the sanya, I mean, like an object of terror, can stay there as a sanya for years. But many things just came and went, came and went, came and went, nothing. Mm. Powerful aims. I really want to do this. I want to learn, I want to be a champion athlete. You can identify with that. You have, that's not a memory, is it? That's a, another very strong karmic drive so it's this, these strong karmic drives are the one the sankharas and as it said these are subject to clinging that is rather as I was using the image of a, of a, pl- of a planet you know which is a gravitational force it attracts so these khandas attract the clinging tendency to it and a very powerful you know, gravitational charge or creates a, a strong tendency to cling to it. So that their identity tends to be formed around things maybe that aren't, say, you know, evil, but repeated. I do this every day, so that becomes an identity. Because it's, it's, it's the fundamental quality of it is amplified by the number of times you do it. <coughs> Certain obsessive tendencies will create an identity because what you think about repeatedly over and over again, even if you haven't done it, just fantasizing, 
about something you haven't done and never will do, just aimless fantasies. That creates a charge, and then you're, you know, you you feel you that becomes part of your experience of identity. Um, what is upadana about? Clinging, the search for stability. And it's uh, it's not a rational search; it's an involuntary search to just draw in the most striking patterns of behavior and and form something out of those. So we know where we are because this is what speaks loudest, what rings most intensely for us. Mm -hmm. That is not a good recipe for creating an identity if you want to have one, because it's not always the loudest voices aren't always the sweetest. Hmm. do we not need relationships and identities as we function yes but they would take care of themselves um, you know the point about um, identity you know as upadana it means that before we enter a situation we're already an identity that's decided what's going to happen in that situation. Right, so I come in thinking, I am the boss, I am the boss. So I come in, I am the boss, it's up to me to tell you what to do. We've already, you know, <laughs> predicted the situation. We don't come in like, what's happening, what's necessary, what's helpful. We're not open, because the identity has predicted and preformed us before before the event that we're supposed to be managing or meeting. Hmm? And some of these identities are very crippling. I am an inadequate person, I can never do this. So, okay, here's the next thing, I go in and think, I'm an inadequate person, I'm never going to be able to do this. What does that do? You know? <laughs> is that healthy? Is that is that useful? To have an identity like that? When identity is made out of such kind of higgledy-piggledy things and how many of them are useful wouldn't it be better to go in with I'm open I'm going to use mindfulness and goodwill and attentiveness and to form the relationship to this situation wouldn't that be more healthy more useful to let who you are put it on hold and not be who you are but be mindful be aware, be responsive mm -hmm. now there are particular sankharas that will help you to know where you are. It's called your body. There are particular sankharas that will help you to know how you are. It's called your, your heart, chitta. How am I? What's happening? How am I feeling? You know, that's fine. That's just the basic equipment. There are particular sankharas that tell you, can tell you what to do about it. 
it's called your brain, you know, happening in your brain is thinking. Let me think. No, not that, that, you know. That's useful. There's not a single healthy sankara that tells you who you are. <laughs> so anything that tells you who you are, <laughs> it's called Mara. <laughs> if you believe it. Because yeah. it's, what you need to know is how you are, where you are, how you are and what to do. You don't need to know who you are. <laughs> do you? <laughs> doesn't it get in, doesn't it kind of limit things? Isn't it rather more interesting to have the, oh, well, I don't know. And, and through really cultivating what is uh, useful, uh, here I am, I'm, you know, I'm in my body, how am I? I'm feeling a bit uncertain. Okay, let's respond to that. Calm, breathing in, breathing out, because I'm here. What are you going to do? Well, listen. That's what I'll do first of all. Listen, check things out, take things in. Just start guessing and playing with things. Wouldn't that be better and more interesting? Finding out as you, as you, you know, winging it. <laughs> as you go along rather than, I'm one of these and that's what it's going to be because I've decided it. <laughs> it doesn't fit in with my wishes, so it, you know. What do you reckon? <laughs> I don't reckon <laughs> Usually the problem is that, um, like, usually the problem is not that the thought doesn't fade away, but that we are kind of grabbing it, that we are holding on to it. If you manage not to hold on to it, wonderful. Don't feel like you have to think about which thought you should hold on to it in your meditation or not. Just let it, like if you have the mindfulness, if, if, the, if your calmness of mind and the mindfulness is strong enough and you can just see the rising and fading, that is actually what it said in the Satipatthana Sutta, watching the arising and the passing away of all like of thoughts, of feelings, of mental, mental formations, whatever. Yeah. So if you see something arising, like a thought arising and passing away, wonderful. Your practice works very well. Um, sometimes we have to exam examine a thought because it is insistent. And even if we try not to go into it, it comes back again and again. And again, it's basically what we have been talking the whole time. It's just like, notice 
what is arising notice is this thought usually when they're very insistent they're emotive so usually an emotion is attached to the thought or like a strong feeling of identification like a thought like it could be a very strong opinion that you have about something or very strong view or like with that of course righteousness often goes along um if it is like an emotive thought connected with anger grief frustration or or like wanting strong wanting agreed then just really notice if you like the first thing is try not to hold on to it let it let it pass if you can't then really look deeper into it identify the emotion identify what this is about let go of the story and try to accept this is what is unfolding right now like say a thought arises with like you have a very strong view about something and you and it just comes back again and again notice what kind of emotive sense goes along with that thought often with a strong view it's righteousness so notice this is righteousness with the noticing if you can make the step to this is what is happening right now i might not like it but there's righteousness in the mind so that that step is accepting this is what is arising in the mind if we try to miss out on this step we are getting stuck we are getting into the wheel of mm, more most likely oh i shouldn't have such a strong view or i'm really right and why don't they and so on and then you are just repeating the story repeating the wheel turning the wheel um try to get out of the wheel into investigation try to notice again what kind of physical sensations go along what kind of flavor is in the mind is it pleasant is it unpleasant is it neutral also notice kind of almost like energetically where does this where does it bring you how does how does it feel how how kind of where does it settle in the body and how does it affect you and see if you can just kind of make a space around it breathe through it and if possible let go the the main thing is that with this kind of thoughts we attach we identify it's it's very hard for us not to take it personal and if like say if you work with grief or if you work with a very strong of aver sense of aversion it's just like noticing this is what is unfolding this is what is present and what is sometimes what is really necessary is that we 
develop a sense of compassion towards ourselves, towards how these fears, how it, how it, kind of how it influences our experience of this moment, and just with the compassion, a space where we can feel relatively safe to really look at it and to go deeper and sometimes really noticing where it manifests in the body and go deeper and deeper and deeper. By doing that, it's somehow as if through the felt sense, the, the emotive energy can dissipate. I hope that makes sense. But it's basically, I think we have spoken about this this evening now a few times. I don't want to add anything more to it. And I hope it answers the question. <laughs>